Welcome to Eczema Breakthroughs, brought to you by Global Parents for Eczema Research, or Cheaper. This show features conversations between parents of children with eczema and the world's leading scientists and researchers who study eczema. Global Parents for Eczema Research is an international network of parents that advocates for better treatments and management options for children with eczema. Jeeper is led and comprised of parents of children with eczema and was formed in 2015 to address the critical need for research that answers questions of importance to patients and families. Learn more about Jeeper and subscribe to the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast at parentsforeczemaresearch.org. Can you control itch with acupressure? Do toxins from bacteria drive eczema symptoms? What is the Dr. Aaron regimen and does it work? How should we think about long-term steroid use? Learn more in this interview with Dr. Peter Leo, Assistant Professor of Dermatology and Pediatrics at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, Founding Director of the Chicago Integrative Eczema Center, and a true pioneer in eczema treatment and research. This episode was recorded August 16, 2016, as part of Jeeper's Research Meetup series, interviewed by Jeeper founder Corey Capoza and attended by parents from around the globe. So the first question, I think, Dr. Leo, one thing that is really unique about you is that you have this strong interest in alternative and complementary approaches to the treatment of eczema. And for parents, there's, there's so many different ones out there. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your interest in bringing the rigor of research to those um, type of approaches and where, where you've seen you know, some promising areas in terms of employing alternative and complementary therapies for the treatment of eczema. I've been passionate about it for a long time, and I actually first started getting interested in alternative medicine when I was in medical school. The summer between my first and second year of medical school, I got to work with two luminaries of alternative medicine, a guy named David Eisenberg and a guy named Ted Kapchuk, and they've both written a few books. Ted Kapchuk wrote one of the kind of the most popular books on introduction to Chinese medicine. It's called The Web That Has No Weaver. And so I spent the summer with these guys. It was incredible. And my job as a medical student was to sort through hundreds and hundreds of papers on energy medicine. So the particular area that I was assigned to was on energy medicine and energy healing techniques. So things like Qigong and Reiki um, and sort of other stuff that, you know, just didn't really have a name, just where people would try to use energy to heal. And it was really, really interesting because I saw this tremendous difference in the quality of the papers. There were lots of papers, lots of science happening, both both, you know, in animal models and in humans, but it was so different than the papers I was reading in more mainstream um, medicine. And, and I kind of realized very quickly that there was this sort of divide. And a lot of the papers were very difficult to interpret because they didn't use the kinds of techniques that we know are really helpful when we're studying something. You know, for example, using a double-blind, randomized kind of setup so that you know that you're not influencing your own results. Um, some of them were sponsored, you know, by a, a company making the herbs and really just were kind of reporting their, their report. You know, they were just reporting their own product. This is our thing and this is how we kind of did it and it helped these 10 patients. They often had very small patient numbers and so on. So uh, it was the beginning where I said, boy, we got to bring some more rigor to this because I do think there's something to a lot of the different alternatives. And then as I got further and further, I was able to do more and more. So um, I've been really interested in acupuncture. I, I got formally trained in acupuncture and had an incredible two years doing that. 
and was able to complete a fun little study where we were able to show that stimulating one acupressure point, kind of massaging it, really helped with itch. And that was really kind of exciting, and, uh, and I still use that with a lot of my patients uh, where we'll say, oh, you know, we can, we can actually harness the power of this just by pressing on this one point and, and give some relief. Um, I've been really interested in looking at the literature. We, we just wrote up a really big, um, a big review article on alternative medicine, so really looking at lots of different things there too. So it's, it's been a great adventure. Great. And I, I, I love that um, you've had this focus on really, uh, you know, being open-minded to these approaches, but then really studying them in a rigorous way to say, do they work? Which I think is really very much in line with our group in the sense that we would like to see that type of research to guide decision-making around the treatment of our kids. So, so just, just one more question, I guess. This one, I think, is of high interest to a lot of people in our group, but there's been just this flurry of research recently related to staff and the role it might, it might play in, in eczema and driving eczema symptoms. And I know you did some early research on antimicrobial peptides and skin infections a, a while back, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about this area and kind of this emerging field of the skin microbiome and talk a little bit about what type of strategies seem to be promising for addressing some of the imbalance that we see out there in the skin microbiome or the bacterial and uh, microbial communities on the skin as it relates to eczema? I, I think it is, it is such a hot topic, and I actually really feel that this is where a lot of the next big thing is, you know, the next big things are going to be coming from. This microbiology piece is, is something we're at the tip of the iceberg on, and we're just learning about how all this is balanced. But the paper that really shifted my thinking, it came out in 2013. It was, it was in Nature, the journal Nature, and they talked about this staff making this toxin, this delta toxin. And when I read that paper, I just, this little light went on in my head, and it sort of, it just sort of made sense suddenly. I thought, my gosh, this bacteria, it, we know it's imbalanced. Like that we've known for a long time, but we've often just said, oh, well, it's just colonizing. It's hanging out on the skin, and you don't really have to worry about it until it causes an infection. And once there's an infection, yes, of course, you've got to treat it. But this paper really showed that this producing this toxin that even if it's not truly an infection, is driving eczema. And if you take the toxin and put it on healthy skin, you make eczema. So to me, this was a revelation. I thought, my gosh, we really have to deal with the staff. And then we've been doing the bleach baths for a while, and I'm very impressed with bleach baths. I feel like they make a huge difference in many patients. But a paper came out, um, and I don't think it's been formally published, but uh, an early work uh, came out from, from a National Eczema Association-sponsored study that actually showed bleach baths, the way we do them, probably don't really decrease staff very much. So that was my second revelation, um, and this was paired with a paper that came out recently showing that bleach is really anti-inflammatory. So they did a mouse model of uh, radiation dermatitis. They created damage in the skin, and they showed that the dilute bleach helped it heal faster and was anti-inflammatory. It actually healed better, faster, and without a scar, but it didn't seem to be a bacterial issue. So then suddenly I thought, my gosh, bleach is doing something, but maybe not doing what we thought. So what can we do for the staff? And that's where, I don't know if, if people have heard about this thing called the Aaron regime. 
he has a pretty big Facebook following, but he's a, a South African dermatologist who has kind of come up with a concoction where he puts some mupirocin. Uh, well, in South Africa, they use uh, fusidic acid or fusidin, which is like our, our kind of our version of mupirocin, antibacterial. He mixes that in, and he's had these dramatic results. Um, so I've been doing a version of that lately. And again, my first, it was so fun because I went in really skeptical. I first learned about it about two years ago, and the first patient, one of my, my veteran patients, they've suffered a ton. Um, they called and said, you know, we read about this thing on the Internet, this guy, Dr. Aaron Regime, could, could we try it? And I looked it over, and I said, well, yeah, I mean, I said, we're kind of doing this already. It's not, it doesn't seem very innovative to me. I said, but it doesn't seem like it's going to hurt. So I, I had them try it, and a week later, they called me crying. I said, what's wrong? They said, this is the best thing you've ever done for us. So I thought, okay, all right, N equals one. This is, this is just anecdotal. Um, a couple of days later, another patient called, having had talked to them, and another patient that knew them as well, and they said, can we do it too? And I said, yeah, it's fine. And we did it a week later. You'll never believe it. Another call, and they're crying. They said, it's the best thing you've ever done. So I said, okay, we need to, we need to think about this. So we've just submitted a paper, 116 cases that I've treated with some variation on this, and we were able to show that about 80% of the patients have seen at least one clinical grade of improvement um, from this, which is pretty astounding because they were all patients who were kind of maximized already. So we kind of picked a group of people that I was doing kind of all my best, my best results, you know, that I could get, and they were plateaued. And so we just did this, and we saw a significant improvement. So that is a very, very long-winded answer to the question, what about bacteria? So I think staph is playing a huge role for, for most patients, and particularly those who are more severe. And, you know, there probably are, are multiple subtypes of patients and subtypes of eczema that it won't work for everybody, but for at least a good chunk, I think this is the future. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, so there's a huge interest in this, and particularly in seeing some formal research around it so that we can better understand both the benefit and the risk. So with that, I'd like to invite others to pose some questions to Dr. Leo. Would anybody like to go first? Hi, can I ask a question? Sure. Who's talking? Hi, um, this is Garrett Schreeder. I'm uh, Dr. Leo, we're actually patients of yours. Um, hi. Hi. So we live in Alabama, so we um, have traveled far to see you before, and you're amazing, and um, it's been life-changing being on the Aaron regime for sure. I just have a question about how you use the Aaron regime versus how Dr. Aaron uses the regime um, and the tapering, and can you just talk a little bit about the differences? Absolutely, and it's such a good question. So I think I, I like to say I kind of use my version of it or a modified version. Um, Dr. Aaron himself tends to use it more indefinitely, so he'll um, he'll kind of say just you know you you kind of we can't cure the eczema, so we're we're going to keep it under control like we would you know high blood pressure or diabetes or any other kind of chronic problem. We're going to use a low level as long as we need. And I actually do think that there's a certain part of that that's that's real, and I think there are some patients where the risk benefit ratio of staying on a topical is better than some of the things, you know, that we'll do otherwise. But that being said, I'm a little more conservative and a little bit jumpier around it. I don't love long-term steroid use. So my goal is, and again, it's my goal. I don't always hit it for sure, but my goal is to try to still taper people off of it. I like to have a when, I call it when, my when better plan. So once you're better, 
I really like to use a non-steroidal. Now that could be a calcineurin inhibitor like tacrolimus or pimacrolimus. It could be, you know, just moisturizer for my milder patients. Those are the best where it's like, you know, mostly don't need any medicine at all. Um, it might be, you know, something else. But, but I really try to have a more on-off pattern. And when we talk about it, Dr. Aaron and I have talked about it a few times, he kind of thinks I'm crazy. He's like, well, what are, you know, what are you hoping for? You're, you're knocking it down, but then you let go. Why, do you, why don't you think it'll jump back? But the, the truth is, I can tell you that a lot of my patients, particularly the milder ones and the more moderate ones rather than severe though, they will go into a remission without steroid. So I have a group of, a huge group now of people where they say, you know, we haven't touched a steroid in three months, six months, a year, two years. We're steroid free. And so I still like to hold myself up to that goal and say, can we try to be steroid free at least as long as possible? Um, I still feel like it's better, even if people are kind of flaring up every now and then, than having them all the time. But I don't know that for a fact. And Dr. Aaron's pretty passionate that he really has not seen long-term badness from even keeping, you know, his low dose for years and years. And his whole point is that basically what protects him is it's very low dose and that this, the presence of the antibacterial prevents that crazy staph overgrowth when you just use, you know, an unopposed steroid. Dr. Leo, could you talk about the concerns about long-term antibacterial use and the resistance from clinicians, not bacterial resistance, resistance from clinicians around the idea that it's creating resistant strains? Yeah, I love it. It's resistance about resistance. Exactly right. right. Um, <laughs> uh, a lot of my colleagues are not keen on this idea, and I've had a tremendous amount of pushback when I've talked to colleagues, which is interesting um, for this exact reason. So people are worried. It's like, we're going to put long-term antibiotic use you know, on these kids like, and on these adults. Isn't this bad? And here's my thinking, a couple things. The first thing is that I don't use it long term. Again, my, my modified version is, again, we do it for, you know, a week or two, um, and then ideally we're trying to taper off. We're off of it. And when we're off of it, we're off the antimicrobial too. Now, granted, every time we go back on it, we're using it again. So I would say it's kind of long-term intermittent use. I agree with that. What is the fear? So the big fear, of course, with oral antibiotics is that we then start creating superbugs that are resistant to it. To me, the nice thing about mupirocin is that it is largely uh, an orphan drug. Nobody needs it. There's not a single medical condition where you say, oh my gosh, this is a life-threatening infection. We need mupirocin. Um, And so the truth is, if there is resistance being built to it, I feel like in the big picture, it's probably not a major concern, especially because most of the patients we're using this on have been on at least one course of oral antibiotics or more. And I feel like one or two courses of oral antibiotics probably does so much more damage to the environment. It, it, it has the potential to make so many more super bacteria that are really dangerous because, again, now we're breeding them to the things that we do use in life-threatening infection. If you have antibiotic-resistant ones, it's much bigger. I feel like the trade-off is really favorable. But, you know, I, I don't know that for sure, and, and I definitely think that there's another opinion that we don't want to use unnecessary medicines. And I think that's part of why the onus is on us to prove that this is not unnecessary, that this is actually playing a huge role. It's allowing us both to have longer and deeper remissions and to use a much lower corticosteroid. And I think if I can make that case, I think most people, even the stodgy people who feel like this is dangerous, say, okay, in that case, I get it. I think that you're right to, to, to make that trade-off. But, but like a lot of drugs, and, and unfortunately like all of medicine, very few things are perfect, right? Every single thing is a trade-off. It's like you do one thing and there's a risk. You do another thing and there's another risk. And so we don't have any, we're not lucky, we don't have any magic thing that just sort of says everyone benefits and nobody, nobody suffers. True. Okay. Great. Can I ask a question, please? Yes, go ahead. Who's talking? Um, hi, this is Katie from the UK. Um, Dr. Leo, how, how do you think the topical antibiotic within the compound actually works? Um, I'm a veterinary surgeon and have 
um, some training. In, in, from what I've been taught, it's to, um, the tubes are developed to um, kill bacteria or um, be bacteriostatic at that particular concentration. So what how do you think it works when you actually dilute it quite a lot in emollient? Um, in theory, it shouldn't work. It's such a good question. I know, and I think that you know, some people have called it a homeopathic regimen, um, but I, I, and I don't think, of course, it's not that low. It's nowhere near that low of dosage. But agreed, it's at least one to ten dilution on these things. So. I don't know. Um, again, I think there's this one of the questions that we have to answer, and, and, and truly I'm approaching it as, as an empiricist. You know, I've just I've tried it in my patients. I've seen what it's done. I went in as a skeptical person and have been really impressed, but, but it's a good point. How good is it? Is it maybe having some milder bacteriostatic role at this dosage? Maybe it isn't doing anything. Maybe we'll find that it, it's working through a different mechanism altogether. In the paper we wrote, we put other possibilities, and I'll, I kind of list three things. I think three possibilities for why this may work Number one is that it's simpler. It's one cream. And if you look at a normal regimen that I give a patient, it's pretty complicated. You know, I'm having them put on their moisturizer, put on their steroid, put on the, the, the barrier cream on their hands. They're maybe doing a, a bath and a soak and all these different things, whereas this is just one piece. The other thing is that they're putting it on multiple times per day. And so some, some more skeptical people have said, well, if I just had a patient put a moisturizer on four times a day, maybe that would be just as good. And my response is, maybe. You know, that's part of it, too. We're doing a, a very unique dosing regimen. Four to six times per day is very different, um, particularly when we know that patient adherence is often pretty low, and many people only do stuff once a day at best, and I think the patients doing this are highly motivated. And, of course, I'm not doing a placebo control on any of this, so part of it is just that magic of placebo. When you start something new, you change a regimen, you often do see a really good bump. But, again, I mean, I think I've now had enough experience with it in patients who, who have been motivated to try things that I think there's something to it, and so all I'm really arguing for is it's worthy of more study. Thank you. Great. Next question. Hi, it's Juanita here in Australia. I have a question on something you said a minute ago about um, long-term steroid use. Can you just explain what some of your concerns are with the long-term steroid use at such a dilute solution? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think my, my concerns with a very dilute steroid or a very, you know, low-potency steroid long-term are much, much less than they are with higher-potency steroids. Of course, when we have higher-potency steroids, we have the local effects to worry about, so skin thinning, eventually pushing it to the point where we have stretch marks. Um, we also, with the higher-potency ones, particularly in smaller kids, we have the issue of absorbing enough to have some systemic effects, and we know those are growth retardation and even, you know, some of the, the suppression of the natural cortisone so that we have kids who are kind of dependent on it um, and pushing their blood pressure up and blood sugar up and so on. But with the dilute ones, I don't think we have to worry about that really at all. Uh, it's more the, 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 the local concentrations. But I do still think... Um, we have some patients out there who are very, very sensitive to steroids, and I think there is the group of people that with this topical steroid withdrawal or topical steroid addiction syndrome that I think is, is a real thing, and I, I don't understand it, and I don't know how to pick those patients out first. So I still feel like good practices is at least to try your best of best to not do long-term if you don't have to. Again, a lot of it is a risk-benefit ratio, and I think Dr. Aaron has been amazing. I think some of his patients in, in a more traditional office would be patients who are on cyclosporin, on mycophenolate, uh, you know, on light therapy, so much, much more powerful systemic treatments that have their own set of side effects, risks, and costs. So when you think about it that way, I think for many people, it's like, golly, to be on a, a long-term low-potency story to a few areas of the body, that is such a better risk than the alternative. But 
I still like to give it my best not to, but I agree. I think the risks are pretty small, and I don't like to be, you know, I don't want to be hysterical about them, but I still like good practices of trying to avoid when I can. Next question. Hi, this is Carrie. Dr. Leo, I'm part of the Dr. Aaron admin group, so we got to hear a little bit about some of the things that you presented in South Africa recently at the Congress there. Oh, nice. So we heard you had some case studies. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so um, I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier that we have a case series of 116 patients that we've taken through, and the key is that they've all been people that are, are maximized on sort of what we're calling standard therapy. So they're on the standard regime where they're basically maxed out to the best of my ability with a mid-potency topical steroid or above. Many of them had been on uh, systemic immunosuppression before as well or phototherapy, and we've still seen this about 80% of that group has had at least one full degree of, on the clinical scale of improvement beyond where they were. So really, really, really impressive stuff to see this happening in people that are already maxed out, so to speak. What time frame and what, was the long scale? Uh, one month. The average follow-up was one month. So we did it, just a short-term study, but just the one-month follow-up when I see people back, we saw a significant improvement in 80%, which was really cool. I, I need the information for myself because, you know, I, like I say, I went in fairly skeptical of it. When I first heard about it, I didn't think it, would, it, didn't think it made any sense, to be honest, the way it was presented. And, and I've just seen this pretty dramatic thing. So it's like, am I crazy? Is this real? And so I just went back through my charts and had a great dedicated medical student, and we spent a couple of long evenings going through everything, and uh, we did it. So I'm really excited. We'll see if it gets published, though, because it's, it's, there's not a lot of room for case series anymore. People really want much more rigorous stuff. And, you know, there's, there's, it's, there's there's a lot of caveats when you publish a series. It's kind of like, well, what does that really mean? You're not comparing it to anything. So it's, it's limited, but I still think it's provocative. And I think what I want to do is I want to just set the tone that, hey, there's something here. Okay, next question from the group. Hi, this is Garrett again. Um, can you just, Dr. Leo, talk a little bit about the use of topical probiotics? Had any success with those? I'd love to. So I'm actually currently, in my, my main study right now that we're working on is on a topical probiotic spray. So I'm loving it. So we have, we're enrolling patients right now, adult patients, and it's a split body study. So we're doing one side is the topical probiotic spray. The other side is a placebo spray. And so it's really rigorous. It's a cool study. We're also, um, the hard part is I have to pick patients that can do a, a, a washout period because um, it turns out that a lot of preservatives in, you know, prescription products and moisturizers and cleansers and all this stuff, it damages the bacteria. And so what we're having people do is they have to wash their arms. It's a, it's a split body, so it's just looking at the arms, the antecubital fossa on the arms. So we're having them wash only that area with a special cleanser that's safe, and they can only use a special moisturizer that's squalene. So anyways, the point is that it's pretty rigorous, and we're doing all this cool microbiology with RNA testing of the bacteria and stuff. So that's, that's pending. I'll let you know soon. But what, my, my, my initial impression is that, yes, it can be helpful, but I think it's going to be one of those things where we have so many questions about what kind of bacteria because we know the kind of bacteria we're taking in our gut, like, for example, like lactobacillus, which is interesting, and there's a bunch of data on lactobacillus sub subtypes in the gut. It probably is not playing any significant role on the skin. What the company we're studying, and there are others, but the one we're studying, they've found special kind of specialized bacteria for the skin called ammonia oxidizing bacteria, and they've actually kind of purified that and gotten that to the point where we, we really know that's what's going on there. So very exciting but tons and tons of questions. So I'm hoping this paper, when it comes out, if and when, God willing, um, hopefully they will be able to say at least this is the beginning. Can we, can we do more work on this? Great. Okay, next question. 
Hi, Dr. Rio. I also, um, with Christine, met you in Chicago. I flew from Florida. I had a 14-year-old and 12-year-old sons. We went to National Jewish twice. They suffered every day of their entire lives until the day we got the cream from Dr. Aaron. We had gone through TSW or what we thought was TSW, and my older one missed uh, 30 days of eighth grade, couldn't walk, couldn't eat. And I, I know that when we were in Chicago, there seemed to be a few of your patients there that were actively going through TSW mm-hmm. or, or what we think that is. Um, and I was just wondering how, when you see such dramatic results on the Aaron regimen, how you can kind of deal with both sides. Right. It, that's, a, that's a good question. It's a provocative one. Um, there is a lot of tension um, with that group, and I, and I feel for them. I think they, they feel a little bit abandoned a lot because, you know, sort of every doctor tells them the same thing to kind of mm-hmm. just use a steroid or just get treating. Uh, and I think, you know, I don't know the right answer. So for those patients, for patients that I, I really think have it, or even those who are really worried about it, I, I really do my best to do steroid-free. Um, I think they're mm-hmm. just freaked out by topical steroids. So um, mm-hmm. I try to, to avoid them when I can. So I've done, you know, kind of modifications of the Aaron regime on my most recent patients. I'm doing um, like a protopic plus antibacterial. So I want to see if that's something that will work, but I don't have enough data on that yet. Yeah. But I don't know, and I, I, but I do try to honor them. Okay, everybody, we have time for, I think, maybe one more question. Can you offer some advice on how to take the research program forward? What sort of things we need to do and... Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think it's so awesome that you guys have, have formed this group. This is amazing. Um, and, you know, I think, I think I, this, is the, this is the perfect kind of thing, kind of figure out the questions that are most burning and, and um, figure out what, what I think was going to make the most impact. Because I don't know if you guys have seen it. I have this great slide I, I borrowed from, actually, it's from the veterinary, it's from a paper in a veterinary journal, but it's uh, from a, a guy named uh, Howell Williams, who's in the UK. He, he's written a lot about eczema, but it's this beautiful, image of this tree kind of falling on its side and uh, it's called the listing tree of science and it's this idea that we have so much data about so many aspects of eczema but when you look at what they are they're all very technical things right it's like we know all about ceramides and cytokines and t-cells and this and that but then when you look on the other side of the tree where it's the where it's you know the part where it's imbalanced light all the big questions are missing you know sort of what actually causes this how common actually is this can we cure it you know is it even curable and there's all these gaping holes so i think you know when 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 you sort of get the the researchy people alone they'll come up with questions but a lot of times it's what questions are within easy reach what questions are of interest to them you know the science questions are fascinating, but I think when you have patients and parents who are motivated and also scientifically minded, you get the best questions because it's like, actually, we don't really care that much more about, you know, this particular T-cell pathway, even though I know that's fascinating for your lab, but we'd really like to learn what the connection to that would be with X, Y, or Z or how we can bring this back to the clinic. So I think you guys are doing an awesome job and, and I'm excited. Thank you for that. We really appreciate it. So with that, we've reached the end of our hour. Would everyone join me in thanking Dr. Leo for his generosity in donating his time? Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast. To learn more and join Global Parents for Eczema Research or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit us at parentsforeczemaresearch.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast.